August 12th, 1968, EMI Studios, St. John's Wood. Outside, it was disappointingly grey and damp. Inside, the atmosphere was also grey, but with a dense cloud of cigarette smoke. Can, Can we, we do, do it again? again? You're not happy with that one. I just, I just you know, no, it's, it's not. not. A broadly accented nasal voice from the back of the control room chipped in. You should do it like you're on stage at the... You mean like, like the, the top, top ten? ten? Yeah, replied the voice. Turn it up. George, if we're going to have the speakers blasting, you'll need to get closer to the mic. I'm picking up too much bleed through. Next to George, Ken Scott perched at the Battleship Grey mixing desk watching the meters. Beside him, Chris Thomas, feet up on the board. Slouched behind the both, John and Yoko, Paul and Ringo. Leaning forward and resting his chin on his hand, George Martin. As the squeal of the rewinding tape slowed to a halt, Ken signalled for the playback to start again. A mumbled counting was quickly overwhelmed by the roar of George's lead guitar, anchored by staccato harpsichord and thunderous bass. George turned, feeling the pumping air from the giant Ortec speaker, his lips almost touching the mic's pop filter, and crooned the words, Not guilty. A song of defiance, refusing to take the blame for the group's Indian diversion. As the track came to a shambolic post-fade ending and George tick-ticked a hi-hat beat through his teeth, the darkened room broke into spontaneous applause. Ken Scott turned to John. Bloody hell, the way you lot are carrying on, you'll be wanting to record everything in the room next door. With that, he nodded in the direction of the control room annex, room 2A. Why not, said John, squinting at the door in the corner. We'll do the next number in there. The following day, after a productive session taping the song Sexy Sadie, road managers Mal and Kevin moved Ringo's drums into the 8x15 space. They then crammed two Fender guitar amps and a coffin-sized basement speaker in front of the kit, each facing the wall. When they'd finished, Abbey Road tech Brian Gibson moved in the heavy-duty mic stands and set the microphones according to Ken Scott's instructions. Whilst Ringo was reasonably comfortable behind his kit, the other three Beatles had to pack themselves into the remaining few feet of floor space like sardines. No one dared to move for fear of clashing guitar necks into real necks or tuning pegs with teeth. The noise of the room was simultaneously exciting and oppressive. They lasted six takes of John's new song, Year Blues, before forcing the heavy door open and letting out the August air and the heat of four sweltering bodies. Let's hear it, shouted John. Nobody moved from the annex, unsure if they'd ever get back inside. The sound of the playback was heavy and compressed. Each instrument reflected off the tiny room's hard walls. John was enthused. Keep, Keep that, that one, one, but let's, let's go, go again. again. This, this time, time louder. louder. Two, three, he shouted into the drum mics. Another eight takes followed, each louder than the last. Finally, the four Beatles burst out of the steaming annex. The wall was now running with condensation, giggling like naughty schoolboys. The tiny space had reawakened their love for playing live, for tiny stages like the cavern, for sweaty, funky clubs and loud amps and drums. They were on a high. They'd reached for something, and just for one night they'd managed to grab hold of it. They weren't to know how easily it could slip through their fingers. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchanged. operate these conditions, 
you know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that, we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next 10 years or album. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 6 I thought I'd start with a book recommendation this time. Soundman by Glyn Johns, an entertaining read from someone who was there and who was very far from misty-eyed about his time working with some of Rock's most famous artists. In particular, I'm pleased that he explodes the myths about how much fun it was to hang out with Keith Moon of The Who. As ever, if you want to follow the events as they unfold, please start at episode one and work your way through. Each episode will be around the half-hour mark, It's a bit self-indulgent of me, but I've gone for an episode length that's pretty close to the time it takes me to run 5k. Besides, there's only so much repetitive rehearsing and chatter you can digest in one sitting. For those of you who don't want to wade through the old episodes, here is a recap of episode 5. After another run-through of I've Got a Feeling, Paul tests the overhead mic and asks if he'll be able to hear some of the recordings that we've been listening to. George Martin's upper-class accent can be heard talking to Paul, notably not the rest of the group, notifying him that a PA system is on its way. George Martin is in favour of the band playing at full volume through a PA system because he feels it will bring out a good performance from them. As will eventually become apparent, he's not wrong about this. However, like John and George have already complained, producer George thinks the soundstage is not the right space to rehearse acoustically speaking. Paul seems on the fence about it at the moment, but he does like the idea of a smaller space that would remind them of the cavern in Liverpool. George is reminded of the uh, blues recording session in the annex at EMI. I mistakenly refer to this as the trap room. That is in fact a whole different part of the studio. I'm commenting on these tapes pretty much live, so where I make mistakes or assumptions, I will correct them when I learn more. It does seem like the idea of the echo bouncing off the walls of the tiny space is the kind of hard-edged sound that George would prefer for live work. Michael Lindsay Hogg joins the conversation and begins dropping hints about a more exotic location for the Beatles' actual performance. While all this is going on, John and George play something reminiscent of Ron Wood's work with Rod Stewart, very uncharacteristic. Michael makes the first recorded suggestion of playing outdoors. Glyn Johns would later claim that this was his idea. Paul thinks it would be too cold. George Martin asks Dennis O'Dell, the film producer, if they've had very loud sounds in this room. And in a slightly comic moment, Dennis can't hear him. Dennis suggests he and George look around at other buildings while Michael pushes again for somewhere spectacular. Paul is still in two minds. 
The microphone switched to George and John talking about Jackie Lomax's album and they play through one of Jackie's songs. The tape cuts to more rehearsal of I've Got a Feeling and the mood is pretty jovial. George does point out the resemblance of certain parts of I've Got a Feeling to songs by other artists, a skill he didn't utilise with his own material, much to his cost later. The next voice we hear is Glyn Johns talking to Paul and Michael Lindsay Hogg. He's enthusiastic and assertive considering this is his first real face-to-face conversation with Paul. The conversation returns to the sound of the live show with Glyn enthusing about the recordings he got of the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. Paul's opinion of the Twickenham soundstage seems to have improved and now he would rather they do the show right here. But Paul also refers back to the Year Blues session in the Annex as an example of an unusual acoustic giving a great sound. A better comparison, however, would be the Sgt Pepper reprise that was recorded in the cavernous EMI Studio One. Michael persists with trying to get the band to an exotic location, but Paul stops him with the revelation that Ringo has just said he is not travelling abroad. It's not clear why Ringo has an aversion to travel at this time. Glyn Johns, in his autobiography, claims it was because he didn't want to eat foreign food. Perhaps he's still scarred by his experience with the Beatles in India. He was the first to leave. Maybe he doesn't want to be away from his young children. Or the thought of the expense of such a trip puts him off. Or maybe it's just a bad day. Ringo, as we will hear shortly, is a little grumpy today. It's pure speculation, but George had teased him earlier about whether or not he was quitting smoking. It could have been a New Year's resolution that Ringo was struggling with. In any case, Ringo is not very cheerful at this point of the day. Two people are present, but notably silent. Siam Asundra, caught on film, but not yet speaking. He will meet with John and George at lunchtime, and possibly leave after that. Also, Yoko Ono. She's captured in footage, sitting at John's right, but interestingly, once Paul has arrived, John virtually has his back to her. He seems to rectify this later in the sessions. We rejoin the session with Ringo talking to Dennis O'Dell. Just to make life difficult, 51 years later, there are two mic feeds going into the tape recording. One is Ringo talking to Dennis O'Dell. The other is Paul talking to Michael Lindsay Hogg. But this is just small talk about cigars and whiskey, so I'll make an editorial decision and not comment on that. Ringo and Dennis are discussing the upcoming production of The Magic Christian. Here's the 17th. No, who? Neil. No, 24th now because of this. You know, you want to get this. Oh, it just goes on and on, you know. Right. I may do it next year. Ringo having a diva moment here. Looks in good condition. I had to put it back Why? This is only going to take two weeks. Not sure how Ringo thinks they can get the project together in two weeks. John thinks it will take three, and this does tie in with the 24th cut-off date. I mean... And it wasn't oh, sure yes, when, we'll when we'll I had to do it. Yes, we see what happens. There's a big shortage. Rather than screw around on the 17th. I said, right, let's make it the 20th. And, and that's the date everybody America must know. We're going to start shooting on the 24th. Whatever happens. Whatever happens, happens it's starting Because America, as you know, right. the production is scheduled for the 24th. This must get put back again as the Beatles finally finish this project on the 31st. See if I can make it. See, yeah, be there, Ring. Will you do me a favour? 
Dennis is an old hand at dealing with stars. He handles Ringo well in this exchange. Ringo seemingly not bothering to read the script. Because this it's is the third one I've had. Because yeah, that's right. Well, it's got better all the time. Well, I'll wait till the final one. Yeah. Because you get to know more. You see, what ideally I'd like to do, Ringo, is use this This one we're doing now as almost a final filming version for all of us who know all the work. Then get Terry over. And then anytime you get an idea or say, well, wouldn't it be great, then he can really, you can really help you, you know. Terry Southern had written the original story and screenplay, but John Cleese and Graham Chapman, soon to be of Monty Python fame, were brought in to improve the script. Terry Southern does seem to still be involved, however, working on the final draft. at some point during the afternoon the Beatles took a break this section of the tapes is mostly dialogue, so it seems a good time to discuss the meeting that seems to have taken place at lunchtime between at least three Beatles and Sayama Sundra, the Hare Krishna devotee who has sat behind John and Paul throughout the rehearsals thus far. In Joshua M. Green's book, Here Comes the Sun, he describes the events like this. At the break, George introduced Sayama Sundra to John and Mal. They walked past outdoor sets to a large furnished room. John asked, What's it all about then? The philosophy was about the eternal struggle between life and death, and that chanting the Lord's name was the only way to escape that cycle of reincarnation. Paul asked, So what about music? As an expression of consciousness, how does that fit in? Answer, The right kind of music could link the soul to God. Spiritual music, such as mantras, penetrate consciousness and awake the sleeping soul. John was hostile. What about peace then? I mean, you can't have all those people running around the world killing each other, can you? Answer. The only way peace can happen is if people of the world recognise they are all part of one God. If you love the Father, you can love his children, even animals. Don't animals suffer too? For peace to be widespread, it has to include all life. There are no recordings of this meeting. It makes sense for John to take an interest in another religion that for him might provide the answer. Paul, we know, was generally open-minded, having not wanted to contradict John in 1968 when the latter had declared himself to be Jesus. Neither appears to have gained much from the meeting, if indeed it happened in any way like this. The main beneficiary of this newfound philosophy was George himself, particularly the way he incorporated the Hare Krishna mantra in his music, indeed searching for the right kind of music that could link his soul to God.
in the drawer. Yeah, yeah, don't get so it here. Uh, no, it's just on a chair or something in there. So much wine. Yeah, I appreciate it if you could get it done today for me. Thanks, Jack. The tape cuts to Dennis making a request of someone called Jack. Frustratingly, I can't find a Jack in either the Let It Be or Magic Christian production crews. Yeah, we still need building the picture, you know? Of course, you will, Nuri. Yeah, yeah well, I'm, set you. Uh, I'm using the other two stages, plus I yeah. left this free for the last. Are you building the boat in this one? Uh, the boat is, yeah, the boat's going to be on this one. Yeah. It'll be the last thing in the picture there. I believe the Beatles are rehearsing in the smaller of the sound stages. This one's known as Sound Stage 3. This is a large stage door which opens directly onto the Barrens, as the street outside is known. This was visible in footage used in the Beatles anthology series. It's an uh, image of the recording equipment being delivered. It's, it's fantastic. I'll, I'll take you up the art department when you get a moment. Yeah, okay. And you can see some of the designs and all that, because it's well underway. Is it still the same boat they had? The, the like environmental... Yeah. Room. Yeah, the dining room the water where we release like the octopus and, and, and all that yeah. things that you watch under the water yeah well that was like yeah, the first that's script. like the first script yeah that's nice but now that's all we well we'll say now. cheerio now I'll take you up when you're, you know during the week sometimes <laughs> John has plugged back in so Ringo excuses himself Dennis sings a tiny little bit of Hey Jude as he leaves, which is quite sweet. The tape cuts to further rehearsal of I've Got a Feeling. George still trying to get that microtonal guitar break. Ringo and George discussing the arrangement. This is the most vocal I've heard Ringo throughout the session. And like uh, maybe G7. Paul's 
still after some Pete Townsend style power chords. A link, Paul says. I think he wants a way of joining John's part to his. After, after yeah. he says, you'll be able to hear it when we go. George asks to have the lyrics. Paul calls for Mal. Like as an offbeat, but a few notes like so. Again, trying to suggest a guitar part for George that he's passive aggressively not doing. Oh, yeah, that's, that's when he says, uh, okay. Yeah, so when it's uh, the foot down at the end, the first time. Yeah. Notice the Beatles use lyrical cues for when they want to come in or change part of a song. So like the fourth time it does it. This break idea does get used in the finished song. Yes. The thing is that maybe I think it may be better to like learn as much as like we've learned of this one of of all of them yeah i was saying that before just and get the we chords bring them and stuff up like that yeah. together rather than just know one perfect and then yeah you have to go back down there. okay well we'll just do it a couple more times and see which way we go and then we'll learn something george wants to learn something else John wants to do a few more of this one, and so they start the song again. Because okay, so it it's that bit where, you, where I think uh, I'm, I'm playing the guitar, or no, but the chorus to sing it. You know, yeah, suddenly mem- deciding which one to be. You know. Okay, yeah, so, so, so uh, that's where it's at for all of us, I think. Yeah. So it, it starts off. I've got a feeling. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the first time. We're, oh, yeah. John decides not to harmonise in verse 3. The song is pretty much complete except for the ascending and descending end that isn't quite there yet. That's Mal Evans making himself useful. Mal Evans was hired as a road manager for the Beatles in August 1963. 
Since that time, he had earned a position as one of their most loyal retainers. By 1969, his role had evolved from setting up the Beatles' equipment and acting as a minder with his huge 6 foot 6 inch frame. He was on hand at all hours to tend to every Beatle need. A 1967 diary entry notes that he bought Ringo some undies for his visit to the doctor. He was particularly close to Paul, at least prior to Linda Eastman coming into Paul's life. As the Beatles still living the bachelor life in London, Paul would seek Mal's company to go to clubs, eat steak dinners and generally hang out, to the extent that Mal briefly moved into Paul's home. When Paul wanted to go on safari to Kenya, it was Mal who accompanied him. With the formation of Apple Corps in 1968, Evans was promoted from road manager to personal assistant and given his own assistant, Kevin Harrington, who he taught how to roll the Beatles joints the way they liked them. What didn't change for Mal was his £38 per week salary. That's around £530 in today's money. Not bad as a wage, but nowhere near what a personal assistant for the biggest artists on the planet should have been earning. This, coupled with his feeling frozen out by Paul once Linda and Heather had moved in, began to make him unhappy. A diary entry for January 13, 1969 shows the extent of his feelings around the time of these sessions. Paul is really cutting down on the Apple staff members. I was elevated to office boy. This is his own self-deprecating description of the job of Apple Managing Director that he was briefly promoted to. And I feel very hurt and sad inside. Only big boys don't cry. Why I should feel hurt and the reason for writing this is ego. I thought I was different from the other people in my relationship with the Beatles and being loved by them and treated so nice. I felt like one of the family. Seems I fetch and carry. I find it difficult to live on the 38 pounds I take home each week and I would love to be like their other friends who buy fantastic homes and have all the alterations done by them and are still going to ask for a rise. I always tell myself, look, everybody wants to take from. Be satisfied. Try and give and you will receive. After all this time I have about 70 pounds to my name. But I was content and happy loving them as I do. Nothing is too much trouble because I want to serve them. Feel a bit better now, ego? By April of this year, Evans's finances were in such a parlous state that he had to ask George Harrison for money. It became a source of great anxiety for him and put a strain on his marriage. And yet, as a sort of acknowledgement of the esteem in which he was held, he was the only member of the Beatles' entourage invited to attend Paul McCartney's wedding. George is complimentary about the count melody idea. Paul likens it to the song Baby It's Cold Outside. Baby It's Cold Outside. Because it's like a surprise, you know. See the thing is, yeah, that bit I think would be great. See when he's singing it, Gordon, we're all playing it, Gordon.
Another attempt by Paul to get George to riff over the ending. Paul thinks he sounds like Mick Jagger for some reason. The tape cuts and instead George has arrived on the idea of an ascending and descending riff. It won't be the last time Paul's instincts about an arrangement are proven to be wrong. It's also a good demonstration of the subtle way that George influences the arrangements. That's Mal trying to set up a music stand for Paul and John. Paul suggests just laying the music on the floor. takes up so much room. he will in the finished version. John playing through the tremolo channel of his Fender Twin Amp. The amplifiers John and George plug themselves into on this day are brand new Fender Twin Reverb Amps. In some photos of the Twickenham sessions you can see the cardboard boxes they came in stacked with the rest of the group's equipment. Up until the death of Brian Epstein, the Beatles had always performed with Vox amplifiers. This was a result of a deal between Jennings, the makers of Vox equipment, and the band which provided them with a seemingly endless supply of amps of greater and greater power and volume and size in exchange for their endorsement. That deal died with Brian, and in 1968 the Beatles met with Fender boss Don Randall and struck a similar promotional arrangement. The big advantage of the Fender deal over the Vox one was the access it gave the band to the full range of Fender musical instruments. The Beatles had free reign to order any product that took their fancy, supplied from Ivor Arbiter's dealership. They immediately availed themselves of two black-faced Fender Deluxe amps, two jazz basses, one left, one right-handed, and an instrument that would feature a lot during these sessions, the Fender 6 baritone guitar, which was used as a bass in many sessions and played by George in the Hey Jude promotional clip. 
For the Get Back sessions, a whole new backline was ordered. The aforementioned Fender Twin Amplifiers were known as Silver Face for the new silver control panel and Drip Edge for the unique 1968 feature of an aluminium strip surrounding the speaker cloth. Boasting 85 watts through two 12-inch speakers, they were extremely loud but capable of achieving high volume without distortion. This was not only unusual, but at the time probably undesirable in the era of Clapton and Hendrix. The Beatles instruments often went against the grain of popular fashion, which led to their own unique sound. Alongside the two guitar amps, Paul gained a new Fender basement amp and speaker setup to match, and they imported a Fender Rhodes keyboard especially for these sessions. And when it arrives they will be singing through a Fender PA. Not to mention, of course, George will soon acquire his iconic Rosewood Telecaster guitar. Despite the Fox connection, the band had been using Fender equipment for some time. Paul had been playing bass through a Fender Bassman amp in the studio since 1965, which sometimes was used for guitar, and John and George made use of a Fender Showman and Fender Stratocaster guitars. In fact, John was the first to own a Fender amplifier, which he bought in Hamburg to go with his Rickenbacker guitar in 1960, so they clearly had an affection for the brand. Part of the reason for the early part of these sessions sounding so ragged is the two guitarists getting used to their new amplification. John is now playing with the tremolo effect that is a feature of the twin. He will have had to unplug and plug into the correct channel to do this, but he enjoys the effect enough to return to it over the course of the sessions. wants to move on. John still wants to rehearse this song. Let's do another song now, learn some new chords and then I can See we can just write the words down and like the chords on He could probably do us a copy of those. They're taking most of those. The Beatles don't really have a process for learning lots of new material in one go, so there's a number of suggestions. Paul wants them all written down. George and John suggest bringing in cassette recorders, and then Paul points out that the Nagra recordings that we're listening to now could be copied for them. It's all right, I heard it before. Paul reveals that he's been listening to the recordings probably during one of the breaks. You can hear it. And as the rehearsals for I've Got a Feeling finally draw to a close, at least for today, we'll leave it for now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. 
Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.